Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. When I was a bluegrass boy, working with the master, the father, Bill Monroe, We used to play the Grand Ole Opry and then get in the bus we called the Bluegrass Breakdown head up north to Bean Blossom, Indiana, home of the Brown County Jamboree. Well, one morning about sunrise, the Bluegrass Breakdown lived up to its name and we were standing beside the road watching the sun come up over the mountains of eastern Kentucky in the deep silence where you can hear the ancient tones. And Bill turned to me and said, listen to this and don't ever forget it. And I put some words to it. It's called The Walls of Time. Imagine hearing a note of music played at a concert and being able to pull it out of the air and hold it like it was a physical object, and peering at it closely, realizing you can see all the other notes in the song within that note. Like the note has facets on it, and each facet shows another note from the song. And not only notes from the song you're listening to, but all of the notes in all of the songs ever played. And each note reflected in this note has an infinite number of those facets, too, and they are reflecting all the notes just like the one you have in your hand. When you look at the artist on stage playing the note, imagine you can see some of yourself in them, and you see where the artist is reflecting you and everyone else in the audience, and everyone else is reflecting everyone simultaneously, just like the note is doing with all the other notes. And the artists on stage can take this a step further and read into each other and spontaneously improvise a jam that none of them planned or thought out beforehand but rather felt and joined with on the spot. Sounds pretty cosmic, right? To tell you the truth, I'd never thought of music in quite this way until recently when I went to Merlefest in Wilkesboro, North Carolina and spoke with Peter Rowan, one of the most cosmic figures in the history of American Roots music. Collaboration was the main topic we discussed, and as I learned, collaboration for Peter Rowan comes naturally and goes a lot deeper than just the songs themselves. 60 years ago, he set foot on a path that would lead to one of his most noteworthy collaborations with Bill Monroe, joining the Bluegrass Boys in 1963. It was with Bill that he wrote the song The Walls of Time, which is playing now. You heard Peter's introduction to this recording from his performance at Telluride in 1994. And in our conversation, he gives more detail about that fateful sunrise experience all those years ago. Following his years with Monroe, Peter Rowan collaborated with Jerry Garcia, Tony Rice, Flaco Jimenez, David Grisman, and more recently, Molly Tuttle, to name just a few. Peter and I talk about those collaborations, about standing close to the fire of the great Bill Monroe, which roots music artists from younger generations have that fire today. We dive into a bit of music theory as well as the meaning of those infinite reflections I referred to earlier, and much more in this easygoing and far-reaching conversation. 
I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories with our episode on Peter Rowan. I sat with Peter Rowan in the lobby of his hotel ahead of his sets on the Friday afternoon of the 35th Merlefest, and we talked for an hour before I finished the interview and stopped the recording. Then we talked for another half hour before I had to go and MC at one of the dozen or so stages at the same festival. Being at Merlefest, we had to get around to talking about Doc and Merle Watson and the festival itself. 
After mentioning Earl Scruggs' key role in helping rejuvenate Doc's career with Flatten Scruggs' collaboration with Doc on the album Strictly Instrumental, we begin here with Peter Rowan. When Merle, you know, had had his accident and uh, really shook up Doc's world, I mean, they had toured a lot together. By then, mm. Doc was well-known. And uh, we all came up from Nashville and sang around the grave and hung out with Doc. Oh, how could we just could, couldn't? It was something you were just going to do. You wouldn't even think twice about it. So we came up. We all knew them, you know, and uh, Doc and Merle, and uh, knew the family. And there was no festival at the time. But we all met at the... Uh, you know, at 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 the, well, I I wouldn't even say it was a funeral. It was more of like a joyous departure. We all sang his favorite song, which is a Midnight Rider, and it was me and the Nashville Bluegrass Band, uh, Mark O'Connor, Jerry Douglas. I think that was pretty much it. So the next year they put on the first festival, and it was a a flatbed truck with some microphones and the people were sitting on hay bales out in that field out there and and the weather was good so it was the field was dry and uh, and we were all invited to come back and then Marty Stewart joined us and uh, but you mentioned Earl Scruggs because that year Doc's show was indoors at the Walker Center and it featured Doc Watson, uh, Chet Atkins, and Earl Scruggs. Those, that was the, the headline act that year at this festival, the first festival. <laughs> Pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. everybody got behind Doc, you know what I mean? It's like everybody knew about Doc. It was a phenomena. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the folkies loved him. But, you know, when he passed away... Uh, I was out in California and I was rehearsing with a, a group and I kept going to the radio because it, they played a Terry Gross NPR interview with Doc. And uh, and uh, she asked him, you know, uh, how, he, how he saw his career. And he said, you know, when I started out, he said, I didn't think people were going to pay any attention to these homespun tunes, he called them homespun tunes because hmm. he was an electric guitar player mm-hmm. and uh, I heard last night Peter Wernick told me uh, because he had a he, he was on a, like a disability he, he couldn't have two guitars they would only let him have one guitar that was like the allotment and he had a Gibson and Les Paul uh, and I don't know where that guitar is or I've never even heard electric music from Doc except well, he plugged in his uh, acoustic guitar after a while to get the sound more direct. Uh, but th- that he called his music homespun, I thought was was a tremendous thing. And when I wrote the song Doc Watson's Morning, uh, you know, uh, picking those homespun tunes, it's such a nice word, homespun. Yeah. You know, it means co- clothing you make at home. Right. And, and, and weaving and, you know... Spinning wheels and old-timey things. It's amazing to think back to the era that Doc grew up in and just how primitive it was, yeah. essentially, to to have come up where he did and they 
you know, if they had a radio, it would have been hooked to a battery, I guess, mm -hmm. you know. He had such ears. Uh, he knew so many songs from an era that I never knew. Uh, the, all these old, uh, I guess, gospel bands had sung some pop music as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a song that he taught me, uh, the chorus goes, you know, you know, the last line is, all out for Birmingham. You know, this old, you know, harmony songs from the South, uh, from the 20s that he heard, you know, from from his things. You know, I came up here uh, in the 60s on a journey to the West Coast, and uh, I came up through the South to visit Doc, and, and, uh, and so Doc was very kind, and he... He had to stay over at his cousin Willard's house. And we got there, and uh, you're talking about those old times. They said, come on in. We got running water. We got electricity. And he took me in the kitchen, and he showed me uh, uh, his sink. And the spigot was on, and water was just gushing out of the this new spigot. This was the new thing. And the pipe went out right out to a stream, right, right ran by the kitchen. He said, we got running water. <laughs> I mean, he had that water all along, but they had to fetch it by hand. And then once they put that pipe in with the, with the uh, spigot, you know, modern, you know, kitchen sink spigot, <laughs> they had the running water. And uh, so they were very kind, and we stayed up here for a few days. And, uh, yeah. It no. was nice to be with the, yeah, the family. The, the old joke is that you list your houses instead of having two bedrooms and a bath, you have two bedrooms and a path. <laughs> <laughs> well, it rained all night in Frisco, now the clouds have rolled away. The city lights are glistening out across the bay. I pick up my whole guitar and I start to play Cause it's a Doc Watson morning, the 18 guitar picking kind of day Now Doc's real name was Arfell and he played the electrical guitar <laughs> The beauty of his melodies were known both near and far. Somewhere in the 60s, Doc found that the 18 started picking them homespun tunes, clear water from a mountain stream. I pick up my whole guitar and I It's a Doc Watson morning, the 18 guitar picking kind of day. That Doc he'd play the Tennessee stud in the Black Mountain Blues. He left us a legacy for me and. The song I heard him sing was with Miss Rosalie. Oh, my darling, my darling, my heart breaks. 
take your lonely journey. Peter, would you tell us about some of your favorite collaborations? You've had so many over the years. Yeah, I I see the 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 world itself and music especially as um, as how we you could say ref, reflect off of other people because every other person we come in contact with is a reflection of ourselves. They feed ourselves back to us, and so I. I I tended to collaborate a lot, you know. The, my first uh, my first collaboration was my first little band when I was fourteen. It was a little rockabilly band called the Cupids, and uh, all those folks are, you know, they're not in music now. One of them's a preacher, and you know, but they were all excellent musicians. At fourteen, people were playing well. Oh, playing well. And one, the guitar player had a, a Gibson F-hole electric guitar. We had silver tones, you know, and it finally got a Telecaster. But uh, right from the start, I, I, you know, it's a phenomena how other people bring you to life. You know what I'm saying? It's, you, you, the reflection, it's, there's a cosmic uh, concept of this called Indra's Mirrors which is that the entire phenomenal universe is a reflection of mirror-like, uh, uh, mirror-like reflections of light from this, this sort of universe of mirrors. And somehow that makes a lot of sense to me, that, that uh, the interconnectedness of, of, of all beings and uh, I mean, I would say the first sounds I ever heard that made me feel that way were when my mother would leave me outside in the playpen, uh, you know, in the mornings of a good day, and uh, I'd hear the birds. And the birds were curious, and I was curious, and those birds would land on the edge of my playpen and look at, look at me, you know, and, and I, I'll never forget that. I'll always remember that. Uh, so. Uh, my first collaborators were my, just my, my close buddy. You know, we, one day we're playing ukuleles, and the next day we see a picture of Elvis Presley in Life magazine with his guitar slung over his shoulder on a strap. And then the next day we, we, got, we found dog leashes and put them on our ukuleles so we could hang them on us. You know, but then we went to electric guitars. But, um, yeah, there was a man named Joe Val up yep. in New England. And... Um, you see, my background in bluegrass wasn't the coffee houses. I liked to go to them because I could hear Sunday Terry and Brian and McGee and Muddy Waters. Well, my background in just by chance in music was playing with bands from out in the country, not the college. I wasn't in with the college crowd. Um, it intimidated me the way they, you know, uh, people tried to sort of present authenticity. It, you know, not all of them, but but there was a, a sort of a, the coffee house scene was sort of like a, became competitive in its own way. Like so, the players were one upping each other. Is that what, or, they, or was it the audience? Well, you know, it How do you a, mean? No, it was an uh, audience. I mean, it was a you know a college scene, hmm. 
But my scene was further out west of Massachusetts and with a, a band called uh, Bob French and the Rainbow Valley Boys and Sweetheart, and Sweetheart was his wife. And uh, I, I started playing mandolin with them. As soon as I started hearing bluegrass, I, I wanted to find a place in the music that, that I was comfortable with. I loved it because it was singing, so much singing, you know. And it was acoustic. And everybody else had gone off to college. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I didn't think of keeping the, the cupids going. I uh, found bluegrass to be a tremendous com camaraderie, you know. And uh, so the audiences I played and sang to were uh, uh, working working people, what they call working people. You know, that's just a classification. just means that in the evening I'd be playing places where people were drinking beer and talking and, and people who were car mechanics and, and you know, folks that lived out in the country in western Massachusetts. Uh, and so I didn't develop uh, an intellectual uh, view of of music so much. And we were talking about collaborations. So my collaborations were with, uh, like, the leader, Bob French, banjo player. He was a, a, a expert car mechanic during the day, you know. But, you know, he, that would, he'd be sacrificing his fingers doing that kind of work. And then, you know, then playing music, bluegrass music in the evenings, you know. And so it was like, it was such a, such a wonderful feeling, you know, these unpretentiousness of, of country folk. They were country. And when the Osborne brothers came up east, they stayed over at Bob French's house. And so I got to meet Sonny and Bobby and Benny Birchfield at the time. And so my, my orientation wasn't really through folk music, uh, really, until Doc came along and kind of knitted it all together. He brought it all together because uh, Joe Val uh, took a liking to me, and he was a typewriter repairman. Right, he and he he knew all the Leuven Brothers and Blue Sky Boys and Monroe Brothers harmonies, and he taught me all that stuff. You know, I would sing with him. I said, "Can we sing one?" And and, he, and then he'd stop me and he'd teach me the right way how those harmonies go. They're very specific uh, right. harmonies. The way they they create space in between the parts. Yeah. So that was a big collaboration with Joe Val, and that set me up to collaborate with Bill Monroe. Mm -hmm. And, and by, uh, I mean, to be a band member is a collaboration. And to take it past uh, just being a member of the band, to to write a song like The Walls of Time, that's a collaboration. Right. But Bill didn't see it quite that way, you know. Bill was very proprietary well, about uh, things. But, you know, he, comes, <laughs> he came up through, a, point, a friend of mine pointed this out to me, he came up through an agrarian, agricultural... <coughs> Uh, way of life that was, yes, you can cut down some trees on my property, but they're going to cost you, <laughs> you know, or, you know, you're going to, you, I'll give you this little piece of land to till, but I'll take half of your crop, you know, and so writing, co-writing with him was kind of like that, and it wasn't co-writing as we know it these days of sitting down and two guys hammering out a song, but it was, we never wrote the words down. You know, he sang the opening line, and I added the rest of the words to the song. And I, it, it was a collaboration, but I was treading, and I was aware of it, I was treading on a world of his. You start talking about the, the whole idea of the walls, the, the walls of time and send the angels for my darling. To me, that's Bill Monroe. 
I mean, I was riding on his turf in a way, and he was proprietary about it, yes. Um, it, it was interesting, I asked Vassar Clements about how he felt about Bill writing fiddle tunes uh, off of some of Vassar's innovative licks. And he said, Pete, to me it was just an honor. You know, so, but I think songwriting is different. When you actually spend several months hammering out stuff that becomes such an iconic piece and, and you're performing it every night, that's different than Bill taking a, a few notes from Vassar and writing a fiddle tune, in a way. But for, for Vassar, he was of the old school. He's, that's, what you, you, that's what you did in the old school. The, the boss owned everything, you know? And uh, I mean, if a record came out uh, that came from a live gig, you never expected to see any money from it. It all went to the boss, you know? Now things have changed, but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> Recorded on December 16th and 17th, 1966, that's Midnight on the Stormy Deep, a traditional song performed by Bill Monroe with Peter Rowan on lead vocal and guitar, Lamar Greer on banjo, James Monroe on bass, and Richard Green on fiddle. I'll be honest, this was one of the easiest interviews I've had, especially with such a renowned artist as Peter Rowan. It was quickly apparent that you could throw almost anything at Peter and he would have a story, a very good story about it. My friend Jeff Williams was with us during the interview, and he asked about how Elvis and the first wave of rock and roll affected him. Peter went on to tell stories of playing with Carl Perkins and stories of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. But always, he would circle back to the question of collaboration. You know, and, and every kind of collaboration is a little different. Some band leaders don't talk to the band. You talk to somebody in the band, and you do what what's expected of you. And Bill Monroe was, uh, I was one of the few people that, um, because I had come from a, a background, a family background, much like his in terms of, of respect and manners, you know, respecting elders, holding chair out for the ladies, hold the door for the ladies, you know, all this stuff. And that, that, that tells after a while. So when you hold the door for Bill Monroe, he, he realizes, oh, wow, you know, this is, you know, it's a, a background kind of thing. Uh, so it was easy for me to be with him on some levels. Mm -hmm. And um, 
but but this intense private world of his, you know, he suspected me of trying to, you know, he suspected everybody of trying to use his his fire. And all I can say about the fire is when you stand too close to it, you get burned, you know, you mm -hmm. really do. He had a way of getting into people's heads, mm -hmm. as all great uh, the band leaders of that era, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, from Bill Monroe to, you know, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, who I think ended up being the, sort of the outcome of everybody's experience in a way. I mean, not everybody looked at their life as as intertwined as I do, but, you know, they, there were a lot of us, <laughs> you know, of, in, of varying uh, degrees of, of involvement. Uh, some people were writing, like Tom Rush, he was writing songs way early, you know, and uh, I had written a few songs that were more like uh, dance tunes um, or even a ukulele tune, because I learned to play from my Uncle Jimmy, who was a ukulele player. But to come into bluegrass, it's very much Bill Monroe's world, and the walls of time were was a spontaneous creation one morning when we were uh, uh the old B bluegrass breakdown had lived up to its name and, and we were uh, like stranded uh, on a cliff overlooking horse caves kentucky and, and it was just dawn and i had been driving i was standing outside of the bus and i shared with bill a couple of things, but maybe even maybe a many a thing, but one was con contemplating nature. Bill would stand in front of a sunrise or sunset and just n not say anything. You know, and to me that was a natural part of life. So I was out there watching the sunrise, and here comes Bill. He sort of just legendarily just sort of floated up to me, you know. It's like, I didn't see any footprints, you know. <laughs> and he's there, and he says, listen good to this, and don't ever forget it. And I took that as as a charge, you know, as a, a, an actual order, that I was to be his amnuensis, or, you know, his, the, his scribe, you know. But then I started writing in the song, too. So, and it was just a typical Bill Monroe melody. I mean, typical, like a the first whippoorwill, da 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 da. Let's see, uh, springtime is near, my darling. The wind is blowing across the mountains, you know. And so it's like this is Bill Monroe land, and we're standing and looking at it. This is it, the moment. It's like the the Buddha talked about the per the perfect moment, the perfect. Uh, circumstances the the perfect gathering uh many levels of course of this the perfect uh, it's sort of like the the auspicious coincidences that lead up to a moment that you you never forget you know and uh so all that was in play and uh but as i say you know i was standing close to the fire and it it singed it's singed, and I'm not the only one. <laughs> Who's got the fire nowadays, Peter? Who do you like hearing? Molly Tuttle and Billy Strings. You know, I mean, this is just the waves. The waves keep rolling. And uh, 
and other folks that I don't even know. I hear people, I heard some kid back in the 80s, somebody gave me a tape from Kentucky of some kid that I think was studying with Bobby Osborne. I don't know where that kid is, but he had it. He, had, he was a mandolin player and he just had it. And I don't know what happened to him. He maybe, he, maybe he's working in a factory, I don't know. You know, I mean, you hear people uh, they're, they're, I'm sure you remember their names. I don't right now, but there's a very famous guy. He's a postman. He's just a mandolin genius, and he, he's been uh, admired by people for years. I can't remember his name right now. Um, I, you know, bluegrass has become, you know, it sort of slid into this realm of jam grass that they they say olden in the way instigated and I guess when I think about it now 50 years later I see how that would have been because I've had everybody Drew Emmett and people like that who were just kids heard olden in the way and what they heard from bluegrass because they were fans of like Jerry Garcia who had a lot of exposure what they were hearing was how well, let me put it this way. Harlan Howard, who wrote many, many great country hits, he said, Pete, that bluegrass, he said, there's a whole lot of picking going on there. And I go, yeah. And he said, he said, in country music, you play a little intro, a turnaround, and then you hear Ernest Tubb. And you hardly hear the band. You hear Ernest Tubb's voice bigger than anything. He said, in bluegrass, there's all these notes going on, you know, all this stuff. And... That's what Olden in the Way honored. Uh, the funny thing is, Olden in the Way, instead of having these tight arrangements, we would do what you do in a, if you have a gig at a pizza parlor. You got six sets, and so your intro is the verse and the chorus of the song as an instrumental. Then you sing a verse and the chorus, and then you play a verse and a chorus. No, you know, tight bluegrass is you play just a break, a short chorus or something, but. Uh, <laughs> Because Olden in a way was about having fun, we just, it was like, yeah, let it stretch out. You know, everybody, like if you listen to how the solos were uh, created there, David Grisman would take one half, then Vassar would come in, and then Jerry would come in, then David would come in. And so in a solo, you got all four players playing the verse and the chorus of a song. That's just how we, you would play a pizza parlor, uh, just because you, you, you could play more. And so... When kids heard Olden in the Way, that's how they heard bluegrass. And then they got into the, I've had people say, you know, I discovered bluegrass through Olden in the Way. Many people have said that. So then they got to hear things like the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers, the Stanley Brothers, and, and all these incredible sort of tight arrangements. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then the other tune that changed things in bluegrass was the way I created the solo section in Midnight Moonlight is just a two-chord vamp, which to me is from like Otis Redding, like Stax music where you get the horns vamping on two changes at the end of a song. Like it's the out, right? The out of an Otis Redding song, there'd be a two-chord thing and he'd be, you know, emoting over it. So I put that in... Those are my favorite chords I threw in there from C to A or F to A. You know, it's like it's way out of the bluegrass hearing of the you know, traditionally 
145 hearing, you know, which is a whole other world of its own, you know, the mountain music. I mean, that those harmonies, something special. But to combine that and Midnight Moonlight and the chord structures of the hobo song and all the songs that Olden in the Way did, that, that it was all sort of circling around uh, wild horses. It, it, there was a, they were all in the key of A, and they all had similar uh, passing chords. And bluegrass no, notoriously doesn't play passing chords. Uh, so the passing chords became, I mean, that was more in the realm of folk music, you know, of, of which I think Bob Dylan was probably the greatest of all the creators of chord structures. When he started really writing his own songs, you know, that and the Beatles, you know, where you, you, you go from G to A to C back to, to G, or, you know, uh, G, D, E minor, C. You know, those are all uh, doo-wop changes, really. They're, they're from uh, early rock and roll, uh, especially the black quartet singing. And, of course, if you go back, and as we, uh, we love to do, go back and listen to people like Sam Cooke and go back into the, you know, Blind Boys of Alabama, and you start to hear how the, the gospel had been doing all this stuff as a background to popular music. You know, it's deep well, isn't it? It is so deep. One of Peter Rowan's most well-known compositions, this is Midnight Moonlight, recorded live at the boarding house in San Francisco on October 8, 1973, by Owsley Stanley. Olden in the Way with Jerry Garcia, David Grisman, Vassar Clements, and John Kant joining Peter in the lineup. Peter's mostly associated with bluegrass, or its long-haired offspring, Newgrass, but he's also dipped into reggae and the band Crucial Reggae with Tony Chin and Fully Fullwood, a group that at times swelled to a nine-piece when they brought in the horn section from the band Burning Spear. He's also released an album of Hawaiian music in 2017 titled My Aloha, which features all original songs written by Peter and accompanied by several notable artists in the genre. And back in the 1970s, he worked with National Heritage Award winner and recipient of the Grammy's Lifetime Achievement Award, among many other honors, the legendary Tejano musician Flaco Jimenez. When it comes to regionality, I would say collaborating with Flaco Jimenez uh, in South Texas was, that was a real uh, jump into the deep end of the pool for me to cross into another culture as superficial as, as it was, but emotionally very deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I wasn't a Spanish-speaking person, but 
Flacco had already done a lot of work with Rye Cooter, and I was down in Austin, Texas. Yeah, we had done Mule Skinner, and I just happened to be in Texas with a, a group of smugglers that went by the name of the Free Mexican Air Force. And I was just writing that song, and uh, Joe Gracie up at uh, the, ra the college radio station had had a way to reach Flacco. He said, he's playing out at this club down in San Antonio tonight. It was an outdoor club. It was called Irene y Fidel's, uh, uh, Irene y Fidel's Cantina, Cantina de Irene y Fidel. Irene and Fidel's Cantina. And, you know, I introduced myself to him and we ended up playing out in the parking lot and hanging out. And that, you know, I think when the, the real answer to uh, uh, collaboration is not only reflection, because I reflect back the emotions that I'm receiving from you and you from me, but it's, uh, it's uh, a spontaneity, yeah. How do you stay sharp and how do you stay motivated? Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Closing out this episode with Squeezebox Man by Peter Rowan from Texican Badman with Flaco Jimenez on the accordion. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it when you spread the word about this series, and it's easy to follow us on your podcast platform of choice where it will only take a minute to give us a good rating and where it's an option of review. This series is a part of the lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media with all the Osiris shows available at OsirisPod.com. You can also hear new episodes on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. <laughs>